Well, our church has been well cleaned this week. Not only were our cleaners in yesterday, they came in yesterday because of the election to do their work, which they do very well, but twice this week we've had a man going round with masks and all the rest of it, spraying the stuff that they spray, this very fine um, spray that they put round after a room or before a room's used for a public event. This is something obviously that the Scottish Government and the councils were doing when COVID was such a big issue. But they're continuing to do South Lancashire, continue to do so. It was all sprayed, and I could see in the hall, the floor of the hall, and in the kitchen, the, the moisture. And you've got to let it lie for half an hour, and you're supposed to stay out the place until it settles. And, and then they came back on Friday morning, and he did the same thing. And he told me it's supposed to last four weeks. So, just don't breathe in too much. It'll not be the COVID you'll be getting, it'll be somewhere else. And once again, we hosted. Um, we were a, a, a voting location for an election. This is the third time in less than two and a half years that we've been used in the election 2019, December 2019, and then last year in May and this year. And can I say that the four folks who turned up, they're the four folks who came the first time and came the second time because they liked the venue that much. One of the ladies, the lady who came in first at quarter past six, I tell you, Mr. White, my predecessor, he was a man who rose early in the morning and attended to the throne of grace. I'm afraid that's not me. But I was down here before six o'clock Thursday morning because I have this dream that on the use at lunchtime, there's going to be a photograph of our church and voters standing outside locked out <laughs> because the minister didn't come down and open up. So I'm down here, you know, ready, really. But the first lady who came in at quarter past six, um, who appreciated actually the fact that we lit the candle on the communion table and all the rest of it, and we had the tri-praying booklets we displayed down there at the front, four of which were taken, not many, but four of which were taken. But nonetheless, she said, I was offered an extra £15 to go to the community centre in Bothwell. But I said, no. I said, I'm going to come to Park Church. Her bills obviously haven't gone up yet. But as they did their work and they're to be commended, because especially a local election's not overly busy, uh, and so it's a long day for them, but they are to be commended as they are up and down our land to carry out this opportunity for democracy to take place. Nonetheless, one could not help but sense from them all, at least from most of them, a certain degree of weariness, brought about not by the fact they were up early, which they were, to come here, but here we go again have another election. I did ask them, when do you think you'll be back next time? You know? And there is, despite the enthusiasm of those who really are supportive of a particular party, I do think, and, and there is plenty of statistics that would tell you this, that there is probably a wide degree, certainly a good half of the population, if not more, who really sometimes think, is there much point in voting? Is it really going to make a radical difference? What impact, whoever's in the county buildings in Hamilton or even in Edinburgh or London or wherever, is it really going to make that much difference? Now, there is another large group of people, of course, who are passionate about that, and we know that. There was a fellow who was here. I came in just before 10 o'clock on Thursday evening, and he was in from one of the political parties, and he was quite buoyed up, I think, because not that not because MD was telling me who had voted for who, but he was actually quite pleased. This actually was a, a ward, that's the name they've referred to an area in a constituency. This was a ward with a high voting 
turnout. There was not very high. I mean, it was 38% or some 40%, but nonetheless, it was higher than many places. And he was quite buoyed up. I could see that as he left. He was, I thought, you're looking keen having voted, but he was here to find out. So if you're like that, of course. But if you're not, you wonder. And the danger is, obviously, and history tells us this, when people do get a bit wearied or wondering, they then turn to, let's just say, more radical solutions. And so if we vote to come out of Europe, things will change. If we vote for a united Ireland, things will change. If we vote for independent Scotland, things will change. History tells us they don't always change. And certainly not always for the better. And as Christians, whatever our different political views might be, even within our own small congregation, there are different views, and I know that. But whatever our different views might be, the thing that should unite Christians is that ultimately, while we're loyal to our own state, while we have respect for the institutions of state, for our government, for the institution of the monarchy, we'll make, we'll make tribute of that at the, at the beginning of June, while we are citizens of the United Kingdom or Scotland or whatever the country will be now or in the future, we should be united in affirming that we are citizens above everything else of the kingdom of God. And our ultimate loyalty is to King Jesus. And our ultimate confidence lies not in political power or who's in control or what nation even we may be a part of, but in the good use of Jesus Christ. The gospel, which the Bible tells us is the power of God, the dynamic power of God to change and to bring about lasting and eternal change, not just change for a season, or for three years, or five years, or for a few decades, but a change that transforms people here, but hereafter, and is the only power, and the only one in Jesus, who can do that. You see, my friends, as we saw last Sunday, and we'll say a wee bit more about Thessalonians and our, and, and our thinking of the setting, it would have been very easy for the first Christians, and certainly those who heard the message of Paul as he proclaimed it both in the synagogue and then in the public domain, and it would be very easy for them to say, well, that's all very well, Paul, but you're talking about something that, you know, Caesar, the Lord, and the Roman authorities will never allow will never accept. Indeed, it's interesting, and when we read the book of Acts, you can look back later on Acts 17, the particular charge that was raised was that Paul and his band of happy Christians, Silas and Timothy, were proclaiming that there was another king. And that's the thing that really would have stirred up the Romans. Talking about other debates, other philosophies, other religions, well, that, well, that's fine. You can do that. Because at the end of the day, that won't change anything. That would be the Roman viewpoint. But to say that there's another king, there's another one who is in power, that is different. So, for instance, from Acts 17, when the people drag Jason, the believers, before we read in verse 6, these, the shouting, they shout out, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. And they're all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. 
And we're told that when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and others post bond and let them go. That was a challenge that a source of power was being called into question. Now, of course, there's a spin on what those who were anti-Paul were saying. Of course there was. But nonetheless, there's also an element of truth. To say that there is all power and authority invested not in a political party, not in an institution of the state, not in a person, or even in a national identity, but in God. And how God has revealed that power and authority in his son, that today is radical. Especially if you say that that son, Jesus Christ, is the only way, the only truth. And the only one who brings the life of God. Mm. Even here there might be one or two kind of. Mm. That is radical now as it was 2,000 years ago. And yet as Christians surely we need to affirm what that, that truth and what that means. Let me read together again just some of the verses that Evan read earlier. I'm just going to read those opening verses in the first letter of Thessalonians. Now, do say, if you don't have a Bible, please do get one. It'll be helpful. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And then later on, in the end of verse 8, we do not need to say anything about it, for others tell us and report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul here, and this is probably Paul's first letter, at least the first letter that we have in the New Testament, the, the record of, his earliest letter here, and he's wanting to make it clear where power really lies. If you live in a state, in a totalitarian state in our world today, then if you think of that question, it will be in a person or an institution. Even in a democracy, we'll think the ultimate power lies with the authorities, with the government, with those who hold office. Now, of course, the New Testament makes it clear. These people are given power. They are given authority. They are instituted for the good governance of people. The Bible makes that clear. But ultimate power ultimate authority where does it lie and what change does it bring about well Paul here makes that very clear that that power and authority that Jesus himself said all power and authority has been given to be that power and authority is revealed when lives are changed he says in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction and that led to people turning to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, I can appreciate this morning we're sitting here and say, well, that's all very true. Amen. You know, let's go on to the next point of the sermon. But actually, I want us to spend some time this morning thinking about that. 
Because for many of us, many of us sitting here and listening perhaps to this online, when it comes to our understanding of the Christian faith and indeed how people come to faith, and we can think of our own families and our own experience of faith, then we often see it as, well, it's just something that you're brought up to believe in. And that certainly would be the truth of some of our older members. That was just your home environment and you went to church and you believed in God and, well, that was that. And then for those a wee bit younger, well, yes, it was something you were taught in Sunday school. And, and it was important to you. And again, it was part of your life package and just the kind of person you were. And it was associated with a whole host of different things, including class and position, the community and everything else. Mentioned last Sunday. I remember as a late teenager going to Burnside, a very faithful ministry there. But it was packed on a Sunday. And there was certainly in a poor Sunday, there'd be 300. Communion Sunday, there was 500. It wasn't all that when you were there. It had gone down rapidly. That just shows the time and the change in 30 years. Not all these people were Christians in an active living way, but that's just what you did. And you went to church and it was part of being middle class and living in a nice area and being a professional, whatever else. All of that was there. Down through the years, well, we then wonder why our children, and I'm thinking this morning of people of our age, our children didn't believe. We sent them to Sunday school. We did our bit. So we think we took vows. We maybe stood here at the front of the church and had them christened or baptized. But for some reason, they're disinterested. In fact, maybe not even disinterested. They're actually quite anti. And then we live in a situation today, and people, Karen tells me, but other people tell me as well, I was speaking to just this past week, that we're now in a situation where there's a vast majority of people, especially young people in society, where, oh, right. Is that what you believe? And Carl, you certainly found at school a certain degree of openness, at least, uh, well, not amongst the, the staff, but amongst the pupils, the children. Oh, right. Tell me the stories of Jesus' old Victorian hymn, because it's completely you and out of my experience and life and background. But whatever age range, whatever generation we represent, whatever situation we find ourselves in with family or grandchildren or round about us with our neighbours and friends, we need this morning to remind ourselves that ultimately the only way that anybody at any time and in any situation, however you've been brought up, whatever your background, whatever your cultural setting, class or anything else is, the only way that somebody will come to a living faith is by the work and the power of God. Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't present the message attractively. That does not mean that we need to be aware and relevant to the times. And certainly I'm more aware that my job these years before I retire is to help us to be a wee bit more prepared for that. Of course, all of that and more is relevant. It's important that we live good lives, and we'll touch upon that either today or next week or fortnight's time. That's all important. But ultimately, we need to remember when Paul went to Thessalonica or whatever else he went to, he tells us that the good news about Jesus came to them not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And so unless God moves, 
unless God calls. And he notices, he says, we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That call of God, that call by name to come and to follow. That work of God, unless that takes place, then we can debate, we can present, we can bring people in here. We did during the 2010s, had massive community events, well supported. And Carla and the good work she does continues to impact the community. The fact that we have been open, the fact that during a time of crisis we, our doors have been open, all of that, I can assure you, has spoken to our community and has been well received. But I would be a fool and we would be fools if we thought that that is what makes someone believe. Though a man be raised from the dead, Jesus said, people by nature will still not and to help us maybe get more of an angle on that, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, that's why it's important to have one, to 1 Corinthians. Because this is where Paul opens this up. And as I say, I don't apologize this morning for spending some time in this. Because I think it's important. To 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm actually going to read the section from the Good News Bible. You follow it in the NIV, and that will be helpful. I'm reading from the Good News because I'm conscious if you're not, don't have a Bible in front of you, the Good News, because it uses the words, tends to put it over a wee bit easier to follow, okay? But I want us, now here's Paul writing, he's writing a wee bit later than Thessalonians. He's writing to a very large church made up of a number of congregations in a very large city, Corinth, a city that was well known for all sorts. If Thessalonica was bad, Corinth was even worse. But the church had flourished there in many ways. And there was growth. There was also many very real problems. But there was growth. You don't get one without the other. But right at the beginning, Paul's laying out the biblical understanding, the apostolic understanding of the power and the wisdom of God. So I'm going to read that to you. Just, as I say, follow with me in your own Bible. Or if you don't have one, listen. Verse 18 of chapter Paul writes, for the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost. But for us who are being saved, it is God's power. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the understanding of the scholars. So then, where does that leave the wise or the scholars or the skillful debaters of this world? God has shown that this world's wisdom is foolishness. Then he goes on to say, For God in his wisdom made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of, their so-called fool, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. Jews want miracles for proof, and Greeks look for wisdom. As for us... We proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For what seems to be God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and what seems to be God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And then he goes on to say, 
Now remember what you were, my brothers, when God called you. Again, this idea of God calling, God speaking into our lives. From the human point of view, few of you were wise or powerful or of high social standing. That didn't always apply to churchgoers, did it? Back in the day, sadly. Few of you were wise or powerful or of high social standing. God purposely chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise. And he chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. He chose what the world looks down on and despises and thinks is nothing in order to destroy what the world thinks is important. This means that no one can boast in God's presence. But God has brought you into union with Christ Jesus and God has made Christ to be our wisdom by him we were put right with God. We became God's holy people and are set free. So then as the scripture says, whoever wants to boast must boast of what the Lord has done. And then he goes on, I appreciate this is a long reading, but I hope we can follow it. When I came to you, my brothers, to preach God's secret truth, I did not use big words and great learning. For while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ and especially his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear. And my teaching and message were not delivered with skillful words of human wisdom, but with convincing proof of the power of God's spirit. Your faith then does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Yet I, do not yet I do proclaim a message of wisdom to those who are spiritually mature. But it's not the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the powers that rule this world, powers that are losing their power. Again, that challenge, powers that are losing this power. Putin is damned. Putin, and if you're Russian and you're listening to this, he is. Okay, he's losing his power. The wisdom I proclaim is God's secret wisdom which is hidden from mankind, but which he had already chosen for our glory even before the world was made. None of the rulers of this world knew this wisdom. If they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as the scripture says, what no one has ever seen or heard, what no one ever thought could happen, is the very thing God prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God made known his secret by means of his spirit. The Spirit searches everything, even the hidden depths of God's purposes. It is only a person's own spirit within him that knows all about him. In the same way, only God's spirit knows all about God. We have not received this world's spirit. Instead, we receive the spirit sent by God so that we know all that God has given us. So then, we do not speak in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit as we explain spiritual truths to those who have the spirit. Whoever does not have the Spirit cannot receive the gifts that come from God's Spirit. Such a person really does not understand them. They are nonsense to them because their value can be judged only on a spiritual basis. Whoever has the Spirit, however, is able to judge the value of everything. But no one is able to judge him. As the Scripture says, who knows the mind of the Lord or who is able to give him advice? We, however, have the mind of Christ. Now, there are many sermons in that passage, but I hope even just reading it has brought home to the radical difference, the vital truth that we need to be aware for those who do not have the Spirit of God. And that is 
human people by nature. That is us by nature. Without God's grace in our lives, we too would be spiritually dead. Then the faith, Jesus, why he came, what he did, what that means, may be intellectually interesting, but it may not be. It may for a season even emotionally stir the heart, or it may not. But it will have no lasting or powerful change on a life unless the Spirit of God takes the reality of Jesus and makes him known to us. And I think some of us know that in reality. We have life partners. We have close friends. We have family members. And there's sometimes when we get to the point we actually think it's better just not to say anything. Because it's as if we're living in a different world. Well, my friends, you are. You're living in the kingdom of God. Sadly, they're not. And what appears to you, that old redemption hymn, what appears to you, the amazing grace of God that stirs our hearts and warms our spirit is foolishness, is nonsense, is ridiculous, and is irrelevant to those who do not Jesus and have the spirit of God within them and I know that you know the reality of that in your own lives and circumstances now that should not surprise us although it can be very hard and I know that I'm not going to ask you to read this I'm going to read it to you you did well reading that large section when you go home take your time Sunday afternoon that used to be an old tradition that people in the afternoon, there wasn't even service to be back and there was no electric light, and people would spend the afternoon with the Bible and read and reflect. I remember Mark, dear brother Mark, used to do that, spend the whole Sunday afternoon reading what, and trying to make sense of what this poor soul had been trying to communicate the service. Take time, First Corinthians, that chapter, lock truth. But that should not surprise us because remember what Jesus said. Because end of the day, that is what is vital. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then these verses, in 20, verse 26 of John 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you, the Father from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. These verses, verse 7, unless I go away of chapter 16, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak in his own, he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Christianity fundamentally is a supernatural faith. It's a spiritual 
reality. And what it does, it transforms lives. Because it opens it up. It accesses us in to a whole new world out there. A whole new reality that is far more lasting than we could ever begin to imagine without the Spirit of God's help. And that's why something that can be so precious to us is a mystery, is nonsense, perhaps even to our family members. Because they're spiritually dead and blind and lost. And that should sadden our hearts. But also cause us to get down on our knees, perhaps not literally, but metaphorically, and to give thanks to God that when the good news came to us, wasn't simply talk, wasn't simply words, but it came with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Because today, as in AD 50, 40, 60, whatever it was, that is still the means by which men and women meet with Jesus. And we're going to stop there because there's more to say and we'll do that in a fortnight's time. But I hope anyway you understand why I spent time on that because that undergirds our understanding about evangelism it understands our whole idea of mission. It understands, for instance, the great blessing it is to be in Christ and that quickening work of the Spirit that has brought us to that. And it also will help us, as we'll see in a fortnight's time, of what it means to therefore live out the faith in our world. It's all of God. It focuses on Jesus. And faith is the greatest gift of the Spirit that we can ever receive. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for these dear folks here. I appreciate that was perhaps a slightly more in-depth or thought-provoking, perhaps hopefully, sermon than maybe we always have. But Lord, these are deep and profound and radical truths. And so I pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you will take these truths. And as we think about them, as perhaps later on we read, for instance, more of what Paul says in that chapter and First Corinthians particularly, that Lord, you would use that first and foremost if we are here this morning and we're not a believer in the biblical sense, it will bring us to the foot of the cross. That it will cause our eyes to be open to Jesus crucified. That we will find in him our life, our song, our hope. And that, Lord, for the majority of us, it will confirm our hearts in that most holy faith 
and will cause us to look and to think about our families, about our community, about the things we hear about going on in the world, in the church and all the rest of it with an increasing mind of Christ. Lord, we thank you for that promise that your word will not go forth, forth but will return having accomplished the purpose for it. And so we ask that you would take your word this morning, not my preaching, nothing to do with me, but you would take your word and you would cause it to engage our minds and provoke our hearts through Jesus Christ our Lord.